0: Welcome to Present Value.
1: Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Elizabeth Potts, a first-year Johnson MBA student and fellow producer on the Present Value team. I'm thrilled to introduce this episode with Professor Suzanne Hsu from Cornell's Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management. The conversation focuses on Professor Shu's research in the area of behavioral economics. Professor Shu and Paul touch on some of the key principles of behavioral economics, choices around personal health, and why decumulation of retirement assets is so important. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at presentvaluepod.
0: I'm your host, Paul Whitcoe. Today, I'm excited to welcome on Professor Suzanne Shu. Professor Shu is the John S. Dyson Professor of Marketing at Cornell University's Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management. Her research areas include consumer self-control problems and consumption timing issues, financial decision-making, and leveraging behavioral economics in the health domain. Prior to returning to teach at her alma mater here at Cornell, Professor Shu taught previously at UCLA's Anderson School of Management and SMU's Cox School of Business. Professor Shu holds a bachelor's degree and master's degree in electrical engineering from our very own Cornell University. She then went on to receive both her MBA and PhD in behavioral science from the University of Chicago. She is also currently an NBER faculty research fellow, holds a joint faculty appointment at the UCLA Medical School, and has been a visiting scholar for several years at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Professor Xu, thanks so much for joining us on Present Value.
1: Thanks so much, Paul. I'm very happy to be here.
0: So I wanted to start with something I've been thinking about since we first spoke a few weeks ago. How does it feel to be back in Ithaca? Not many people leave sunny Southern California to move to upstate New York.
1: Yeah, it's true. A lot of my colleagues in California thought I was absolutely crazy to be leaving LA to come back to Ithaca, but Ithaca has always been sort of the home in my heart. I grew up up in Syracuse, not too far from here as a, as a small child. I came and did, as you mentioned, my undergraduate and graduate degrees here. I worked as a staff member here for a few years. I met my husband here, who was also an undergraduate in electrical engineering, and we uh, we got married here at Sage Chapel and Statler Hotel for the reception. And so this, to me, is a place that I've always loved and always feels the most like home to me. And I was just really excited and honored to get the chance to come back.
0: Even as we enter a uh, cold winter ahead, huh?
1: Absolutely. I kind of missed the seasons. It's been such a thrill to me to be here. I I arrived in April. Of course, spring in Ithaca is always beautiful. And just as things were starting to bud and and blossom, I I arrived and got to see all the flowers coming up. And that was something we didn't really have happen quite the same way in, in LA, where it's always about 72 degrees. And it was a lovely summer. And then this fall, the trees have just been spectacular. So I don't mind the snow. I don't mind the cold. It's a good excuse to get some hot chocolate out. I'm quite happy to be back.
0: That's right. Some hot chocolate and some podcasts is, uh, is the perfect remedy. There we go. <laughs> so I know you studied electrical engineering here at Cornell and eventually made the transition to studying business, marketing and really behavioral science. Could you talk a little bit about that journey and, and how you landed in this field?
1: It's a very good question and not an obvious one, I think, when you first start thinking about it. And certainly not one that I ever expected I would go down. You know, when I went into engineering, I felt very strongly that that was the path I wanted to go on. I came out of a family of engineers and I loved the problem of using science to solve these real world problems. You know, that was really what attracted me was that I'm I'm someone who loves puzzles. I love being a detective and trying to figure things out and find better ways of doing things. So that aspect of engineering was really what drew me into it. And then I think from there, I took a path that's pretty common to a lot of our engineering students, which is getting a job in industry, working in technology for a while. I happened to be working in the telecommunications industry and it was great. But after a while, you start to realize, well, there's all these layers above us who know something about management and my technical skills can only maybe take me so far and I need some management training. And my husband and I both... Agreed at that point to go back and do MBAs, and we landed at the University of Chicago. So the path from engineering into management made a lot of sense. And then, where I think things took a really strange turn, perhaps, was as an MBA student, my very first week of classes, I wandered into a class taught at Chicago by Richard Thaler on behavioral science and behavioral economics. And all of a sudden, the things that I'd seen in the workplace as behaviors that I thought were kind of a little crazy by some of my coworkers, and you know we all have that moment where you see a coworker or a manager or someone do something, and you think, "Wow, that just that just doesn't seem rational." And all of a sudden, here was someone who actually studied and understood and could explain why people do the things they do, and so it was just another set of puzzles to be solved. And I was intrigued and ended up staying and doing my PhD there at Chicago with Taylor and. I still look at my job today is still a job of solving puzzles. Instead of why do technical things do the things they do, now it's why do people do the things they do and how can we help them do it better and help, how can we help them be more efficient?
0: Yeah, I really like the way you put it. It's kind of things that are seemingly so obvious, but it's really deep in the consumer psyche that either firms or, or situations are influencing behavior, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of what we look at in behavioral sciences is just how elements in the environment change the decisions we make and the engineer, the logical, rational side of me says, oh, well, it should be this trade-off of costs and benefits. And I love taking economics classes because it was that same thing. It was marginal cost and marginal benefit. And you put them up against each other and you see who wins and that helps you make a decision. But in the real world, when people are walking around, we're influenced by all sorts of things, not the least of which is stuff like emotion that can completely throw the balance one direction or another. So I'm just fascinated by that, trying to understand what that set of trade offs looks like in a given decision.
0: Yeah, right. Traditional economics says everyone is a rational consumer, but I, I know that's certainly not the case. So it's, it's such an interesting field to me. And during your time at the University of Chicago, you mentioned that like a pivotal moment for you was wandering into that behavioral science class taught by one of the most famous behavioral economists, Richard Thaler. And, and I know you worked with him and under him to get your PhD. I guess what was your biggest takeaway in, in working with him so closely or something you learned?
1: Oh, that's a very good question, and I think one of the huge benefits of working with Thaler and learning from Thaler, and what makes Richard Thaler who he is, is really being inspired by these real-world problems. So, he actually started off his faculty career here at Cornell. He was in the Johnson School as a young professor. And he was trained as a traditional economist because there was no such thing as behavioral economists back then. He's really the first one. And things that, again, should have been sort of rational and logical, he was going out and asking people questions and finding that their answers weren't always following those rules. And he was fascinated by why are people doing this? And so A lot of his most famous studies and his most famous topics have been generated by just observing people and seeing what they really do and trying to figure out that real world behavior. And that's, I think, what really appealed to me was being driven by what you see going on around you in the real world being driven by sort of a more applied attempt to understand the implications of the decisions that people are making. So rather than being entirely driven by the theory or sitting up and talk about ivory tower academics, it's, I, that's that's never been who I am. I'm, I'm really interested in these real world problems. And that was the kind of stuff that he studied. So I think that's, that's part of what attracted me to working with him.
0: Yeah, for sure. And just diving into some of your research now. So the first part of your research that I wanted to start with is behavioral economics in the most traditional sense. One of the key concepts in this field and something you researched early on in your career is the idea of nudges and choice architecture. Can you describe for our listeners who may not be familiar, what is a nudge and and how do we see it in our daily lives?
1: So nudges can sometimes be misunderstood <laughs> in terms of what they are, and I'm going to go with the, the classic definition that comes from Thaler and his co-author Cass Sunstein, who wrote the book Nudge. And so basically what they say is a nudge is something in your decision-making environment that helps push you one direction or another in the decision, but not in a way that you can't override it. And I'll give an example in a moment. So not something that binds you. It's not a constraint. It's not a restriction or a ban. It's just something in the environment that helps push you in a certain direction and also is not using financial incentives to nudge you. So the nudge is, is usually sort of more subtle than that and doesn't come with these financial consequences. So some classic examples of nudges, a lot of people talk about defaults, and I'll talk about perhaps one of the most famous ones that's had a lot of big implications— imagine that you're starting a job at a new company and one of the options is to sign up for a 401k retirement plan. And on day one, HR comes to you and says, hey, do you want to sign up for a 401k? And the way it used to work was that you had to make an active decision to do that sign up. You had to sit down and say, yes, I want to sign up for this and here's what I want the settings to be and everything else. And that's not always an easy decision. I mean, I remember my first job when they asked that question, I had no idea what I was supposed to say. I had no idea whether to sign up or not. I had no idea what to set the withdrawal rates at. I think I called up my dad and said, dad, what am I supposed to do here? Right? So it's a, it's a decision that if you haven't done it a bunch of times before, can be hard to figure out what to do. Using a nudge means setting it so that when somebody walks into a decision like that, the defaults, for example, are already set in a way that if you do nothing, you still end up with what most people would agree is a pretty Good outcome. So the default might be to automatically put you into the 401k plan rather than you having to choose to go into it. The default might be that the percentage of your income that's put into that plan is is something like three percent, which is sort of a good starting point. It's not too much, not too little. But you can override that. You can say I want to save a lot more. I want to save six percent or ten percent. Or you could say I don't want to save anything at all. I need all of my income because I'm financially constrained and I, I need that money for. For other purposes and set it down to zero and just not participate at all. So again, it's not binding. The person has the ability to override it. We're not paying people for making a choice one way or another, but we're giving them an initial push in the right direction so that if they do nothing, they still end up with a decent outcome.
0: Yeah. And I guess sometimes I would think that the default option is always in my best interest, but that's not necessarily the case, right? Sometimes there's ulterior motives or deliberate framing of those choices, right?
1: That's right. And Thaler and Sunstein have taken to calling those sludge and they're updating their book and I think they're gonna have a whole new section on sludge. You're absolutely right that sometimes companies can use those not in our best interest to find ways to sort of trap us into things. So sludge could be something like setting the default in a direction that's that's not great, or instead of making it easy to do the right thing, making it hard to do the right thing. And a lot of cases of sludge that have shown up lately are things like, you sign up for some sort of a recurring payment and to get out of it, like a gym membership, you have to go through all of these hoops and special steps to be able to get out of it. Um, I'd signed up for a gym at some point that required, you couldn't just call them and tell them you wanted to stop the gym membership. You had to go in in person and sign a form and show ID and everything else. And it's like, well, part of the reason I don't want to go to the gym is it's inconvenient for me to get there. So of course, it's going to be inconvenient for me to go show up and stop the membership. And that's sort of a form of sludge. It's making it difficult to do the thing you want to do.
0: No, exactly. And thinking about this idea of framing choices, I know another focus for you has been framing choices over a time horizon and people fall victim to this idea of myopic procrastination, if I have that right. Can you give an example of what this is?
1: So myopic procrastination is thinking about, we have a joke uh, within my field in behavioral science that a lot of us study the things we're bad at, and procrastination tends to be one of my big weaknesses. So myopic procrastination is thinking, well, I don't have time or energy or whatever to do this today, but I can do it tomorrow, so I'm just going to put it off for a day. Without recognizing that tomorrow rolls around and the same problem happens, right? So if I look at my to-do list, I always have this problem that the items on my to-do list from today have often been carried forward from sometime last week and are likely to get carried forward by a few more days unless there's a really hard deadline that I have to meet. And so we procrastinate on things that are tasks or things that we don't necessarily want to do. Students procrastinate all the time on homework, which is why professors like me always have deadlines for homework, not because we really believe in a deadline because we know if we don't give you one, you might not ever get it turned in. But one of my, or actually a few of my early papers were about how we procrastinate even things that we enjoy. So for me, a classic one is is a gift certificate. People will give me a gift certificate for the holidays or for a birthday. And if it's something really awesome and special and wonderful, what we find is that people will think, well, I've got to wait for the right occasion to use this wonderful gift certificate. I've got to wait for some big event in my life or wait for the right day where everything's going right. And we end up postponing it, myopically postponing it, thinking that there's a better day around the corner and we're just going to hold off. And I shudder to think how many gift certificates I've sort of let expire because of that, that way of thinking. And so those were the studies we did was looking at giving people, give certificates for fun things like a piece of chocolate cake and finding that they, they don't necessarily go use them because there's always a better day. Or we looked at people who live in great cities like LA or London or New York City and ask them, how often do you go see the tourist attractions in your own city? And people who live there can always just procrastinate it to the to another day. It's like, I'm too busy today. I'm, I've got things at home I need to do. I've got other stuff I need to get done. I'm not going to go. Whereas a tourist who comes with... A clear deadline by which they have to get it all done, they'll get out and they'll see everything within a couple of days. So even stuff that's fun will tend to procrastinate. And I end up giving the advice, you have to think like a tourist, pretend that you only have a week to go out and do something. And that's going to force you to go out and do it. You have to give yourself the deadlines.
0: I'm for sure guilty of that myself here in Ithaca. I think it took a whole year for me to get to Ithaca Falls. I feel like one of the the, the biggest tourist attractions in the whole city. So I, I totally understand that.
1: It's taken me about 30 years to go see. The things that I didn't go see as a student, I finally got out to see when we came back because I knew that I'd waited too long and missed them the last time.
0: Yep. So another hallmark concept of behavioral economics is the endowment effect, namely that a consumer's valuation of an object increases once they've taken ownership of it your research notes there are really two aspects driving this endowment effect perceived ownership which if i understand correctly is would this really be a loss to me if i didn't have it an effective reaction which is basically if i do li- how much do i like this thing so do you see one of these aspects as carrying more weight than the other or, or how would you juxtapose the two
1: that's a very good question. I will say that I put more weight on the psychological ownership piece, and and I've done a lot more work in that space over the years since we wrote the first paper on that literature. But the affective reaction, that's kind of your emotional connection to the object, that certainly plays a part as well, and I think it amplifies the psychological ownership we feel more ownership towards things that we like and that we're positively disposed towards. So putting it in a almost simplistic framework, like things that we don't affectively like, that don't make us happy, we might push away from us a bit more and not see them as attached to us from an ownership perspective. But things that do make us happy or that we do like on an emotional level, we're going to sort of absorb more into our sense of self and our sense of identity and feel a stronger feeling of ownership towards them. And I'll note that this, this feeling of ownership works for things that you legally own, but also things you don't legally own. So you can get a strong sense of ownership over things that, that you just feel sort of attached to even, even places or locations like Cornell campus. To me, I have a not sense of ownership in the sense that it's not like Cornell belongs to me, but I feel very emotionally attached to it.
0: Sure. And are there any areas where we don't see this endowment effect manifest as much? I think of people maybe who are buying and selling things very frequently. And why might that be the case?
1: Absolutely. So it is known that people who buy and sell things frequently could say collectors of baseball cards or sometimes people who trade a lot of stocks, buying and selling stocks, anything else where you're buying it with the purpose of probably reselling it at some point in the future tend to develop less feeling of psychological ownership towards those items because they may legally own them, but they're not really connected to them and they don't feel like it's part of who they are or part of their identity. So there's not as much psychological ownership there. My co-author and I used to joke when we started working on that project that it's not like you have psychological ownership over the dollar bills in your pocket, right? You legally own them, but we don't see an endowment effect for a dollar bill. A dollar is a dollar and you're going to treat it that way, whether it's in your possession or not. And part of that is because you don't feel necessarily any ownership over a particular dollar bill. The exception to that is if you've ever walked into like a shop and the owner has the first dollar that they earned framed up behind the counter somewhere, that dollar bill probably means a lot more to that person and is really highly valued. And it's just another dollar bill, but it it has this sort of sentimental value and this attachment and this high feeling of psychological ownership that that bill is not like other bills. And so it's kind of a nice example of where psychological ownership can really boost the value of an item.
0: Yeah, and along these lines, you've also talked about the connection between touch and perceived ownership. Is that concept really as simple as touching and holding something makes it feel like
1: it's yours? That's a piece of it. So in the literature on psychological ownership, there's an argument that there's three things that drive that perception of of psychological ownership. One is an ability to control the object. And so touch is a piece of that control that you can physically control it, can move it around, you can inspect it. Another driver is what's called intimate knowledge of the object. So the more you know about something, the more ownership you might feel towards it. And touch can help with that as well. And you can imagine holding something and touching it and really understanding what it's made out of and understanding how it works a bit better by touching it. And the third piece is investment of the self. Touch doesn't really help with that, but that's where you can start to see psychological ownership for all sorts of other things. So imagine a product that you buy that you've had some hand in the creation of it, whether it's Ikea furniture that you're assembling yourself or there's like Converse and some of the other shoe companies will allow you to design your own version of the shoes. Anything where you've had some hand in customizing it or creating it or being involved with it, you're going to feel a a stronger sense of psychological ownership for those things as well. So touch is a piece, but there's other things that can lean to it as well.
0: Sure, and and you mentioned some good examples, and we've seen companies, I guess, sort of catch on to this concept in a lot of ways. Like I think of Warby Parker or Amazon Prime Wardrobe, who, who send you products to try before you buy. Probably, you know, thinking about this idea of touch and perceived ownership. And I guess these these types of strategies are even more important in a COVID world, right? Like this idea of going to the store and touching products we plan to purchase has sort of been put on pause for the time being. You know, what can these companies do to make consumers feel a greater connection to the product?
1: Great question. And especially in the time of COVID, I think that's absolutely right that we're not doing sort of normal shopping and we're doing a lot more online shopping. So traditional versions of touch aren't quite there anymore. There has been some really nice work, not done by me, but (laughs) I'm happy to say that I I think some of our work on touch and psychological ownership did inspire some of the later work, showing that purchasing, for example, through a touchscreen. Or a, like a tablet or a, or a laptop that has a touchscreen, because you feel like you're manipulating the object on the screen versus through just a keyboard or a mouse does lead to higher psychological ownership and higher valuation. So that's one way in which online shopping gets us. But your example of Amazon wardrobe sending you the clothes and giving you a chance to try them on and still send them back is a great example because we know that anything that allows people to sort of do almost what I'd call a test drive, where you get to pretend it's yours for a little while and see if you like it, is going to increase psychological ownership and and create a bit of an endowment effect where you, you start to value it more and you start to really think of it as yours.
0: Right. And you've done some work locally in Ithaca on this concept too, right? From a sustainability perspective, trying to strengthen that perceived ownership of public parks or spaces through naming and other things that can potentially ultimately increase the care for these spaces.
1: Yeah, so our most recent paper on psychological ownership was using it to drive sort of the sustainability and this idea of taking care of these public spaces. In economics, there's a long-standing idea called the tragedy of the commons. And the idea behind the tragedy of the commons is that when you have a public space that's, say, jointly owned by a bunch of people, like a park that's owned by taxpayers and is, is part of the public trust, then individuals are likely to abuse that public space because there can be no sense of responsibility sometimes. And so the tragedy of the commons is that these common areas can fall into disrepair because they're overused by people. And we started asking, well, you can't have legal ownership necessarily of these public areas, but can we increase psychological ownership so that people start to feel like, hey, this is my park or my lake or my space? and therefore take care of it as if it was their own. And that's what we were able to do. So you're absolutely right. Things like asking people to come up with their own name for a lake. We didn't do it at Cayuga Lake, but you could imagine being asked to rename the lake and whether you want to call it Paul's Lake or you want to call it some other name that you want to give it, that might be enough to get you to feel a stronger sense of ownership over it. And again, remember those three drivers I talked about. So control of the item, intimate knowledge of the item and investment of the self. Naming is a bit like investment of the self, but it could also be the more time you spend on that lake, the more you're going to feel ownership of it because you you just know it really well. Or if you have a hand in volunteering and maybe a little bit of control over who uses the lake or any kind of being part of a committee that maybe oversees it, then that's also going to lead to psychological ownership. So there's, there's multiple ways that people can increase their feeling of ownership towards these public spaces, which then increases their willingness to help take care of it more.
0: Well, Paul's like sounds pretty good to me, so maybe maybe we can get to that eventually. <laughs> but building on these consumer decision-making concepts, I wanted to take it to the individual level, some personal health decisions, And and I know your research has touched a few different aspects of personal health. So one study that comes to mind is the work with colon cancer screenings. Colon cancer is a major cause of death in the United States. But people don't seem to prioritize the screening accordingly. Uh, It might seem a little out of place, but in your research, how did behavioral economics help intervene with this issue?
1: So this is a story that actually starts in the classroom. I was teaching a bunch of MBA students and one of my MBA students happened to be a doctor. She was pretty high up in the hospital system at UCLA, but she felt that she needed more management training. And so she'd come to do an MBA and she was taking a class that I was doing on behavioral economics and marketing and suddenly started realizing that a lot of the ideas I was talking about, these nudges that we, we started off talking about earlier, could be used in medical environments. This is a space that's actually exploded over the last few years, and a lot of different universities and medical centers have really adopted behavioral interventions and nudges to try to change both patient and doctor behavior. But this was a little bit before that had really taken off in a big way. So we started talking, and one of the big topics that she had problems with was getting people to do these colon cancer screening kits. And it's not a fun screening. I won't go into the details (laughs) of the process, but it's not enjoyable. And they were a little frustrated because they were sending out the kits for free to hundreds, even thousands of patients and getting very few of them back. And so what she asked was, what can we do from a choice architecture perspective, just in the mailings that we're sending to people to get more people to send them back? And we played with a, a few different things, but Pulling in the psychological ownership idea, one of the simplest was just saying, instead of their original letter, said something like, Please take this fit kit that you've been provided by the UCLA medical system, and changing that to saying, This is your fit kit that we are sending you, and really highlighting it belongs to you. This is yours. And hoping that 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 feeling of ownership and that feeling that, wow, this this is entirely mine and it's up to me what to do with it. And maybe increasing the sense of value that went with that would drive a higher response. And and sure enough, it did. We got a a lot more back and they were very happy because they even caught some some people that needed additional screening. So better for long run health, colon cancer is this really serious problem. And it's nice to see the research actually having an effect on people's health and people's lives.
0: And on a related note, I think something everyone is curious about is how the heck can I stick to a fitness goal, right? I'm guilty of it myself. We set goals and fall off the wagon very easily, at least for me personally. So is there a way that we can think about this differently to have some success?
1: well i've already given away that i've canceled many gym memberships in my past so <laughs> it's something for for all of us to deal with and i've also already mentioned that i have a problem with procrastination so certainly self-control and sticking to healthy habits is is always a topic i'm concerned about and any secrets <laughs> are going to be are are going to be most welcome on my end So I had a PhD student a bunch of years ago that was luckily for me interested in this topic as well. And we started talking about what is it that makes some things more successful than others in the self-control domain. And one of the programs we looked at was thinking about Weight Watchers or other weight loss programs. And what some of them had started doing was allowing people some space in their set of constraints to sort of fail once in a while. And so we started thinking about that as a way to help people stick to really hard self-control goals like dieting. And we tested it in a bunch of different ways, but the basic takeaway was that we found that by giving people what might be a really tough goal, and so to bring this back to gyms, let's say I want to go to the gym seven days a week, that's a really hard goal to get off my butt and make it to the gym every day for seven days, right? That's something that on a really busy day, I'm likely to fail. And one of the things we know is that all you need to do is fail once or twice at a tough goal like that, and you just give it right up. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) So, so we thought, okay, well, how can we help people survive those failures, right? Uh, help people to have these really hard goals, which is motivating, right? The simple version could be, well, I'm only going to go to the gym twice a week. That's a much simpler goal. It's a lot easier to do, but I'm probably not going to lose as much weight that way. So we want to hold on to the tougher goals, but we also want to let people survive failures. And that brought us to this idea of the emergency reserve. And the emergency reserve is kind of like, rollover minutes in a cell phone plan or extra points in a weight loss plan where if you do fail, you get a few free passes. Teachers use this all the time in terms of extra credit for students, right? You screw up and you get, you know, you get like a free pass once in a while, or you get some extra credit to make up for the thing you screwed up on. And sure enough, that definitely helps because now when you screw up, you catch in one of these emergency reserves you sort of call it, instead of calling it a failure for that day that you didn't go to the gym, you say, well, I, I cashed in my magic coupon on that day. And, and so I'm not going to call it a failure anymore. And I can pick myself back up tomorrow and get back on track.
0: It's something I'll have to try out. And I know my Fitbit will thank me if, if I'm successful. So it's been awfully sedentary here in quarantine so far. But of course, we can't talk about health in 2020. And bypass the coronavirus pandemic, given how much it's changed our day-to-day lives, right? So I recognize you have not studied it in any sort of formal context, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on personal behaviors related to COVID. What could be done from a behavioral economics perspective to increase something like mask wearing? It seems like government and businesses simply telling us to do so has had mixed results at best.
1: Yeah, this is a big topic within behavioral economics and behavioral science right now, because there's this recognition that here's this big public health and policy challenge that we have to face as a a nation, as a world to get through. So something like mask wearing, I haven't done research on it yet, but it would be fun, would be to see whether some of these ideas like psychological ownership and customization could lead to better adherence to mask wearing. So imagine if your choice is between just a, a plain old run-of-the-mill surgical mask versus something that's sort of more customized and personalized, you're going to really value the personalized one a bit more and feel a bit more attached to it and probably feel more psychological ownership towards it and more willing to wear it. So I think that's one space that we haven't really played around with yet, but certainly could. And it is fun for me to look around and see all the different types of masks that people wear it really becomes this self-expression opportunity to either wear a slogan or wear something fun or creative or individualistic. And I think encouraging that could help with mask wearing.
0: Yeah, definitely. So to transition now, you know, a lot of these behavioral economics concepts and and perceived ownership have tied into, you know, what's one of the biggest areas of your research, which is financial decision-making and retirement. So, Earlier, you spoke a little bit about retirement, and I just wanted to revisit this to discuss how people should approach these types of decisions. So over the course of our lives, we attempt to accumulate everything we can for retirement, 401ks, Roth IRAs, et cetera, et cetera. I think people are very familiar with that, but there seems to be a lack of knowledge and focus for when we retire and how we should spend our money. And it's becoming increasingly important as baby boomers. And I think about my parents, for example, are approaching retirement. And admittedly, I was pretty unaware before we spoke a few weeks ago. So my question to you is, what is the decumulation of assets and why is it so important?
1: It's a fun topic because a lot of times your reaction is is not the only one. I'll bring it up and, and people are like, wow, I never even thought about that, right? We're so focused on the saving side. And I think behavioral economics, as a field, has made good success on the saving side. I mean, we started off talking about choice architecture and nudges, and the idea that when you go start a four hundred and one k with an employer, they'll set defaults into place to try to help you save. So there's been tremendous success in that in that area of getting more people involved in saving for retirement. But there'd been almost no consideration of this decumulation side, which is. Imagine the day you retire, if you've been good at saving in your 401k all those years and you've built up a nice balance there, hopefully in the hundreds of thousands, if not more, then the day you retire, think, wow, I've got all this wealth. This is great. But how do I figure out how to spend it down? I have no idea how long you're going to live in most cases. It's not like we get this magic bit of information that tells us the day we're going to die. And so we can calculate and say, oh, we have. 30 years of retirement that this money has to last me for. I'm going to spread it out exactly this way. There's also uncertainty in terms of what's going to happen with the stock market and investments. So if you leave it in the market, is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? There's just a lot of things you don't know, and there's a lot of years to to get through. So it turns out to be a really, really hard problem, a problem that even economists who sit and strategize how to demise this sort of thing, don't have necessarily good answers for. I've talked to a lot of big financial services firms like BlackRock and some of the others who specialize in this, and they build these very beautiful simulations and models, Monte Carlo simulations that run through sort of a thousand variations of retirement and say, well, this looks like it's the best path. But most of us as normal humans who have to make this decision, you know, it's uh, it's not always obvious what to do. And we don't always have those tools at our disposal. So that's a big thing that I've spent a lot of time thinking about is how do we help people address this decision? And what are the things that push them one direction or another? So back to this idea of nudges.
0: And is the issue more that retirees feel like they're going to run out of money or that they may not be optimizing and leaving a surplus? Or maybe it's a little bit of both.
1: I think it's a little bit of both. So certainly there's this feeling that you're going to run out of money. You don't want to spend it too fast because it's really a fear of running out. And that is a big fear. Like that is something pretty terrifying. And so as a result, people tend to sit on the money. And we talked earlier about this idea of myopic procrastination and especially for enjoyable experiences. One of the other things I tend to procrastinate on a lot is good bottles of wine. I've I've probably collected too many good bottles of wine in my life. And My husband will say, oh, let's open one tonight. And I'll be like, no, no, no. We've got to wait for the right opportunity to open this bottle of wine. And I feel like retirement savings is sometimes like that. People can go into retirement and they've worked so hard to save all this money. They feel a huge amount of psychological ownership over this money because they've spent 30 or 40 working years putting it away. They've got this beautiful nest egg that they've saved up. And the idea of starting to break that down and spend it Can be a little scary because what if you do need it later? What if something terrible happens when you're in your 90s and you're going to need that extra money? So I think there is a lot of fear of spending it, but also the fear of running out, and those those two things can lead to all kinds of weird behaviors.
0: For sure. And your research outlines five main approaches to influencing these accumulation decisions. Could you maybe discuss just one or two of those that you think are particularly important?
1: So. Some of the things that we think have a a big influence on these decisions and also can get in the way of how people address these decisions... It can be things like financial literacy, knowing what's available out there. It can be things like how people think about that uncertainty that we talked about, the uncertainty of how long you're going to live and framing that uncertainty in a way that that helps you deal with it a little bit better and address it a little bit better. Getting people to even just think about the future is so incredibly hard, right? Most people don't Plan more than a few years at a time. And so, planning when you're in your 60s for what life is going to be like in your 90s is really difficult. And so, one of the things that we sometimes suggest people do is running out a mental simulation or a a story of how you got to where you were and then working backwards to figure out how to make that happen. Like, I'm going to imagine that I'm 90 and I'm living comfortably in my own place rather than being dependent on family. And I have all these other things going for me. Well, how did I get there? But also running out the negative version. So I'm going to imagine that I'm 90 and I've run out of money and I'm dependent on my kids to keep me housed and sheltered and fed. How did that happen? How did I I run out? How did I end up in that situation? So there's a bunch of different things that we can try. Again, back to these nudges and choice architecture to get people to start doing a better job at that planning.
0: So social security is often one of the biggest sources of income in retirement. We talked earlier about psychological ownership and the endowment effect, which comes into play here. Most people claim social security as early as possible, feeling like it's their money that they put into the system during their working years. I know your research is not prescriptive financial advice by any means, but is this the right way to be thinking about social security necessarily?
1: probably not right. <laughs> from a from a national perspective right i struggle with this one a lot like how how do you get people to stop thinking about it this way because it, i think it is natural and it's actually baked into the system so fdr when he first put together social security there's a great quote i'm not going to remember it exactly, but he basically said that he wanted people to feel really strong ownership over it, which is why it's taken directly out of our paychecks as a sort of line item contribution. He wanted it to be something that people felt like they were contributing into, both because he wanted them to value it on the back end, but also for some political reasons, he figured it would be harder to take it away if people felt that sense of ownership, which I think is actually pretty clever and gives you a lot of insight into a lot of government entitlement programs. So he wanted people to feel a lot of ownership and that works. People retire and they get there and they think, hey, that's my money. I've been putting it away. I'm going to pull it back out. I don't want the government sitting on it. And yet at the same time as a society, we're very dependent on it being a system that's really a pay-as-you-go system where everybody's chipping in during their working years and then getting some benefit during their retirement years. So what current retirees get out of Social Security is actually coming from money that current workers are putting into Social Security. It's not like a 401k where it goes under your name and it sits in a little bank account and waits for you to retire. It's a system that depends on all of us participating and being part of it. So it is a challenge because we want people to feel this ownership, but we want them to not feel so much ownership that they feel like they have to pull it out as soon as they're at 62. The other thing I'll point out is that financially, it's optimal to wait because the Benefits from delay, from waiting from age 62 all the way through, if you can wait that long, to age 70 are better than you can do in the marketplace. So imagine two people, one who claims that 62 and invests it in the market and another who lets Social Security sit there until they're age 70 and starts claiming at that point the person who claims at age 70 usually comes out ahead financially. A lot of economists have done those analyses and said that's kind of the optimal decision for above average lifespans and also better than you would do if you invested that money in the market. And yet, even with that financial incentive to wait, we see people claiming early. And again, there's there's multiple reasons. There's the psychological ownership. There's also this fear of loss that if you do wait until 70, And then something happens and your life expectancy isn't as long as you are hoping it's going to be. Say you die at 71 or 72, you're going to feel like, wow, I didn't get a good deal because I claimed, I waited to claim till I was 70 and I only got one or two years of benefits where if I'd started at 62, I would have gotten 10 years of benefits. So there's there's a little bit of that fear of loss as well. So there's multiple things going on.
0: And and I guess it really comes down to framing one's life expectancy and how long you believe you will live to, right? Do people get this estimate correct when they think about it?
1: Not usually. Most people are pretty far off. And we also find it's very dependent on how you ask the question. So if we ask somebody, what's the chance you'll be alive at age 75, which is kind of the average life expectancy right now in the U.S., or pretty close to, the reasons for being alive at 75, you can think, oh, well, I did go to the gym a few times and I did try to, you know, not eat the chocolate cake as often. And I have some family members who lived a long time. So like living to age 75, yeah, that sounds that sounds doable. I think my chances are good. If we ask the flip of that question, which is what are the chances you'll die by age 75, in a perfect world, the answers to those two questions would add up to 100% because it's it's two alternatives. There's not much else and yet when we ask what's the chance you die by age 75 now you're thinking about oh i canceled too many gym memberships i didn't go often enough i ate too much chocolate cake i probably don't live as healthy a lifestyle as i should i have family members who died young right it recruits all these sort of opposite thoughts and now you start to think well maybe my chances of making to 75 aren't so aren't so great and so just the simple way that life expectancy is asked about can have these big effects on what you think your chances are of, of being able to get those benefits from Social Security for a long time. So that is one thing that we think influences the decision.
0: And along these lines, I wanted to dig into the idea of life annuities. So across the board, people are pretty anti-annuity whether for perceived fairness or other reasons I think only three to four percent of the population buys into them so I always think of the old JG wentworth commercial where they're they're singing an opera on the city bus exclaiming how it's their money and they want it now I think that sort of embodies embodies the perception but to that end can you first define how an annuity works and and what are some of the benefits that they might bring in retirement?
1: So there are lots of types of annuities out in the financial marketplace. And I I, want to be clear that I'm about to talk about life annuities, which are designed for retirement, right? And I mean, they're really best thought of as a form of insurance and they're offered exclusively by insurance companies. And it's kind of variation of insurance against living a, a long life. So instead of life insurance, which is you get paid out if you die, the idea behind a life annuity is that it's insurance that continues to pay out the longer you live. So thinking about it that way, it starts to sound a lot more appealing. And yet you're right. Most people don't like life annuities and see them as unfair and take up on them is is incredibly low economists, sort of rational, non-behavioral economists, love them and write lots of papers talking about how more people should, should have them because it does give you this protection of living too long. If you buy an annuity when you're, say, 65 and you manage to live all the way to 105, 110, 120, you're going to keep getting monthly income through that annuity. You, you will have that money for as long as you're alive. So it removes some of the risk. It's a way of of removing risk of outliving it. The research we've done and done a, a good amount of research on annuities and what drives people's choices on annuities And we find that people see them as unfair because they're concerned that if they buy a life annuity, if they take some of that hard-earned nest egg that they've saved up all their working years and they chip off a chunk of it and send it to an insurance company and get a life annuity in return, if something happens to them right after they buy the life annuity and they feel like they don't get their money's worth out of it, that feels incredibly unfair. And again, it's an insurance product. So it's not like you buy life insurance and if you don't die tomorrow and get the the benefit of the life insurance, you feel like, oh, that's so unfair that I bought life insurance or I bought insurance on my house and it didn't burn down. And I feel like that was unfair that I didn't get the benefit of my fire insurance. But that is how people seem to, to look at, at life annuities, that if they don't get the money's worth out of it, they feel like it, it was an unfair product. And so we've been very curious about, are there ways to get people to think about these life annuities that help them deal with the uncertainty of living a really long time And it helps them spread their money out, right? Notice that this is a nice solution to this problem of how do I decumulate all this money? I'm converting it into what's going to be monthly income for the rest of my life, and yet people don't like them. So the psychology behind that is really fascinating and something we're still working on.
0: Yeah, I mean, even hearing you lay it out now makes a ton of sense, but I question when I'm in that position if I would be able to pull the trigger myself. Just, I don't know, something about it, there's like a barrier there. So it's, it's very interesting. But before we go, I wanted to end with one question here. So a large portion of our audience are current students or recent alumni who are pretty early in their careers and are are definitely in the accumulation phase for retirement. And in what ways would you suggest that we think about retirement and some of these important decisions that are kind of coming down the road? Is it a matter of assessing our appetite for risk? I'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: Oh, excellent question. Uh, So, one of the things I would definitely suggest, and one of the things we're, we're trying to do even on a more national scale, is getting people to start thinking about some of these decisions, some of the decumulation decisions while you're still younger. So, like I said, we've done a good job on putting behavioral solutions in place to help people save more, most People who are sort of doing their MBAs right now or even doing undergraduates or whatever, they're going to go start working at a company. They're going to get offered a 401k and those default settings are going to be there to help them start saving. So we're doing better at at getting people to save. But saving is only sort of that first step. Now you have to figure out what you're going to do on on the backside. And if you wait until the day you retire, if you wait until you're in your 60s and you've saved up all that money it gets hard to make rational decisions because now you're emotionally attached to it and you have this high psychological ownership and you have loss aversion. So the sooner you can start thinking about it and almost pre-committing your plans while you're young, the better those decisions are often going to be later. And you, you don't have to force yourself into a corner so that you can't change them later, but setting up the default so that the money does get converted to an annuity, for example, on the day you retire, or at least some portion of it, then it's, it's a little easier to stomach because you know it's coming and you've, you've made up your mind in advance that that's what you want to do. And you thought about it rationally without a lot of those emotional issues. And I say that some of this is being worked on even nationally, the SECURE Act, which passed... Congress, I think it was last year, a piece of what's in the SECURE Act is the ability for employers to offer life annuities as part of retirement packages. And we're starting to see some companies actually do this where they're now offering workers the ability to convert 401k balances into life annuities at the point of retirement, often by pre-committing into it. And so I think we're going to see more of that. And I heard for a while, some companies talking about calling that a personal pension, which I've always loved. Like the idea of a pension is great. People love pensions. They love the idea that they get monthly income. And now instead of the pension coming from the company or the organization, it's a pension that's driven out of your own 401k. So you've saved the money when you're younger and you're converting it to income when you're older. So those are the things I'd encourage people to think about is to start making the plan in advance so that you don't have those emotional issues tripping you off when you get there.
0: Yeah. And, and once I finish school and have an income again, it uh, certainly gives me a lot to think about. Right. Well, Professor Shu, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've really learned a great deal. So thank you so much for coming on the Present Value Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This has been a great opportunity. I'm so happy to be connecting back to the Cornell community in this way. So thank you again.
0: Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Alex Vorwald, Efuan Santowa, and Elizabeth Patz. I'm your host for this episode, Paul Whitko. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.